Hey everyone, welcome to the Uncomfortable is Okay podcast. I'm your host Chris Desmond. This is episode number 23 and I'm having a chat with Holly Woodhouse. Now Holly was introduced to me by Nick Morrison. Cheers Mori. Um, you can listen to Nick's episode back number 19, uh, Making Sustainability Easy. And I jumped at the chance to have a chat with Holly because she sounds sounded like she had done some really awesome stuff. So in the conversation today, we have a chat about her uh, running the Marathon de Saab through the Sahara Desert. She's just got back from running an ultramarathon, five-day ultramarathon adventure through the Peruvian jungle, which is pretty incredible. Uh, we talk a bit about adventures that she's been on in New Zealand and, and how cool uh, everything is around here, just out our back doors. Also, while we're on the topic of New Zealand, it was pretty uh, pretty evident to see how small a place uh, we live in over here. Besides knowing Mori, there were also a whole lot of other people uh, that we, we found out we mutually knew which was pretty cool and we had a massive conversation about that off air. So Holly is pretty adventurous um, but also one of the reasons that she goes and does these adventures besides to actually go and do cool stuff is that she's part of the team that raise money for a charity called Four Rangers. For rangers are a dedicated group of individuals who are raising money for the welfare of rangers who risk their lives daily to protect Africa's endangered species. So it's pretty awesome work that they're doing there as well as promoting the, the healthy message to get out and, and get moving but also to raise money uh, to, to protect some of these pretty uh, amazing species from, from poachers. In case Holly didn't have enough to do with that stuff, she is also the publisher, editor and creative of the Say Yes to Adventure magazine. Um, I've got the latest copy sitting in my hands here at the moment and it looks pretty, uh, pretty beautiful. So she does a fantastic job with that as well. So I had a really wicked time having a chat with Holly today. We talked through all her adventures, um, but we also talked about the need to search for something different and search for a new challenge um, and how when she's pushing herself, she knows that she's put in the work and her body is going to be able to do it. And that really, when you get to the day of having to get things done, it's all the mental game. We talk a bit about uh, how... Every story appeals to different people as well. And that's something that I found with this podcast too, is that people are going to relate to, to different stories. Some people will love certain stories and not really connect with others at all. And, and others will be the opposite way around. Enjoy the chat, guys. Thanks for getting uncomfortable with me and Holly today.
Holly, g'day. Welcome to the Uncomfortable is Okay podcast. It's awesome to sit down with you tonight and have a bit of a chat. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me on your show. Oh, it's a pleasure. Once I kind of found out about you and all the stuff that you were doing, it was a, a bit of a no-brainer to uh, reach out and, and get in contact. And it was great that uh, Mori could uh, kind of point me in your direction and uh, provide me with some contact details. Yeah, no, good old Mori. He's great. Yeah. Thanks, Mori. Thanks, Mari. <laughs> so, Holly, for the people that aren't familiar with you, though, can you uh, give us a little bit of background about yourself, kind of where you grew up and uh, your, your formative years? I, uh, I was brought up on a sheep and beef farm west of Ashburton uh, with my parents and uh, sister and brother. We spent, I spent in sort of my life outside, I was extremely fortunate being able to go skiing, the mountains right there, the lakes. Um, we were out on the farm helping dad most weekends and riding our ponies. And so sort of that outdoors was just part of our life. I then went to, was shipped off to boarding school, <laughs> um, which looking back uh, was a, an incredible experience. It was a great school, Craighead in Timaru. It was there that I really sort of, played every sport that I could and uh, just sort of immersed myself in, <clears throat> in everything outdoors adventure and I also uh, loved art and photography and sculpture while I was there. Um, so from school I went and did a Bachelor of Design in Wellington uh, in landscape architecture. Yeah, then headed over to Sydney and stayed there for three years doing landscape before sort of coming home again and then I worked for a magazine in Ashburton called Latitude. And then after that, sort of did an extremely late OE uh, to London for a year, which was amazing. I'm just so glad I did that. Late in terms of you only just scraped in in terms of visa time? Yeah, I was actually over the over the old threshold. But um, so yeah, applied about two months, two months before I turned 30. I was sitting at work uh, one day. And I just thought, you know, if I don't do it now, I'm never going to have this opportunity to do it again. And I knew it would be something that I'd regret and I didn't want that. So I said to myself, got the two-year visa, said to myself, you know, if I only did a year, then that was fine. At least I'd gone, I'd gone and lived in London and, and I'd heard so many stories about all my friends doing it and absolutely loving it. And it was just a really great way to go and see a different part of the world. Yeah, it's a great base as well to kind of get out and see Europe and because uh, it's so close. Coming yeah. from New Zealand, <laughs> yeah. trying to yeah. go anywhere eh, is just, it's a bit of a plan. Eh? You can't just pop off for a weekend. No, not really. Not like this sort of, you just, yeah, you'd get on the train over there and boom, you'd be in Paris. It was amazing. So you talked a bit before about obviously your uh, athletic endeavours, um, but also about the art and design. And um, so they kind of started to come together a little bit when you were over in London. Yes, well, <clears throat> I, I always say that um, one would be my job and one's a hobby. And if I didn't do one, I'd do the other. So when I decided to go to uni, I, it was a... It was sort of a, a what would I do? Do I go and do a design, something design, or would I go and follow something sport? And I decided to follow design, um, but sport always, always played 
a massive part of my life um, playing hockey. I played hockey when I was at uni. And then when I went over to Sydney, I wanted to keep that sport going. Uh, and I got right into triathlons, living at Bondi, living the, the dream down there. And it was it was just so great. So in their love of design and the love of adventure, I knew that I would, you know, I really wanted to be able to gel those two into a career. Um, I always said my dream job was design job wearing sports clothes. So uh, <laughs> hopefully, I'm a little, a little bit step closer to getting that. Awesome. So, how did those two ideas come together? So I was in London, and uh, my sister and brother-in-law live in Kenya, and we talked about sort of um, doing sort of races and Sam came up with this idea to do the Marathon des Sables, which is an ultra race through Morocco, through the Sahara Desert, and raise money for rangers welfare in Kenya, something that he uh, is extremely passionate about. So we sort of locked that, that race in and I was searching for a way, a, cre- a creative way, I suppose, to contribute myself to the rangers um and so i decided to start a magazine that sort of yeah and then it's just carried on from there i think we need to break that down a little bit because (laughs) there's three kind of massive things in there and i think if we do it let's start off with talking about the marathon de saab because that's the first thing you brought up what was the driver to to go and do that had you done and done a few ultra marathons before so i hadn't done ultra marathons uh running but i had uh bef- uh just before i left to go to london i ticked a massive bucket uh, item off the list and did the coast to coast so i had exposed myself to a bit more endurance racing and sort of that sort of pushing yourself a bit further than uh, not just a half marathon or a marathon, but um, but sort of taking that next step. It wasn't really until I was in London that that scene over there, that, mo- that ultra scene is massive. And I had heard about the race before. I'd listened to Lisa Tamadi talk about it. And I just, I remember thinking she was absolutely crazy for doing the races that she does. And she is. Uh, but... Uh, and so it wasn't until I was over there, I was actually in France on a um, trail running week in Chamonix, which was incredible. And I met a lady there who had done the race the year before. And yeah, we just sort of seemed like the next adventure to do. It was perfect opportunity. I was living in London, so I didn't sort of have to pay for the flights mm-hmm. and it all just sort of fell into place. And yeah, it's weird. I've just kind of had a thought that everyone starts to hit marathons and ultra marathons about when they hit 30, eh? <laughs> Is that just because we've kind of lost a bit of pace at that stage and we're like, oh, nah, I can't go fast anymore. I need to go long. <laughs> I don't know. And, I, and I, uh, I, I don't consider myself as an ideal ultra runner. Like I'm not fast at all. Um but I suppose I have the determination and I like a challenge. I'm always sort of searching for something different and I hadn't, I mean, I'd, I'd done the coast to coast. And so when this opportunity came up, I was just like, well, yeah, 
who wouldn't want to run 260 kilometers through sand dunes carrying everything on your back (laughs) i think that's a perfect point for you to tell us actually a little bit more about the event and kind of uh do you have any cool stories from that (laughs) oh it was so great um so there ended up being five of us which formed the running for rangers uh charity so the five of us really uh, set up that charity and we headed to morocco to the sahara to do this race so it was uh five days 260 kilometers and we had to carry everything on our backs uh, a lot of compulsory kit and we were given a tent in a very loose uh, sense of the word. It was a carpet held up by four sticks um, to sleep under and they gave us uh, water, bottled water uh, that we needed throughout the race. Yeah, and that was um, that was really kind of the start of it and none of us had done an ultra before. We were all just, we Googled and we just had no idea really what we were getting ourselves into but we all can completed it and we absolutely loved it. It was an amazing experience. What are the kind of temperature ranges with that? I imagine it'd be brutally hot during the day and then actually quite cold at night. Yeah, it was. Um, it was hot. Sort of the the days sat around the mid-30s, uh, but at one stage we were heading up um, sort of a very rocky valley and apparently it got to 54 degrees. Uh, I remember it being very hot, but a 54 degree day in New Zealand and you would possibly die. <laughs> like, mm. The heat over there was very different. It wasn't that scorching, searing heat uh, we have at home. So the heat wasn't really an issue uh, to us. We just made sure we uh, kept hydrated and, and kept cool. So, yeah, it was just about man- managing it properly. And, yeah, and then at nighttime we got down to – low single digits so it was cold it was also extremely windy um so we just pulled the pull all the sides of the tent in as much as we could um and sort of lie we were just lined up like sardines there were seven of us in our tent um and sort of just huddled together and until we got up in the morning did you get much sleep i did i'm just so lucky i can sleep anywhere so I mean, it was great. We had our, I mean, hours before midnight were, were huge. We were asleep. Uh, we were in our in our sleeping bags when it got dark, which was about 8 o'clock, and we'd get up sort of at 6. So, I mean, there's nothing else to do. So we were extremely well rested. It was good. And how many people in the event itself, how many people compete? The year that I did it, um, there were, it was its 30th year, so they actually opened it up, uh, so added an extra 200, 200 places available. So there were 1,330 people that started that race, so massive. And 1,200, I think about almost 200 people pulled out during the race. So, yeah, just about 1,200 or just under 1,200 ended up finishing, finishing it. Man, and are you camping with all of those people every night as you go through? So what happened was when you arrived, we all got shipped, uh, we all got bussed to our campsite on the night one and you got off the bus and you just found yourself a tent. There were a whole lot of these tents all in big semicircle. So the five of us 
stay together and we actually had two guys from the middle of London that came and joined us, just two absolute randoms. Uh, and then <clears throat> there was a number on that tent and for the rest of that race, you were in that same tent. So everyone was in their same tent for the entire race. And yeah, so most tents had eight. We were actually quite lucky. We only had seven, so a bit more room in there because there wasn't much room under those tents. Obviously, it's quite a physically taxing race to do in in those extremes and, and that distance. Did you have a few kind of mental challenges at times as well where you just thought, man, this is, I'm struggling here? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I, the landscape was just so foreign to me. I... I have never been in sand dunes or in the desert like that and sort of the heat and the wind. But doing it in a team, we, um, Jax and I, a really good friend of mine from here in New Zealand, she did the race with me. We did the whole thing together and, you know, it was awesome. So if one was feeling low, you know, we were talking to each other pretty much the whole way um, so we could really help each other out. One of the stages, though, is called the long one, and it was the fourth day. Um, so you had three days before the fourth day on the long one, and then you had a day off, depending what time you got back, <laughs> and then you had a marathon for the last day. Um, and that long day, that was long. We walked most of it um, just because our aim for that race was to finish, and we didn't want to just slam ourselves and not get over that finish line that, after that marathon. Uh, the four of us actually ended up doing the whole race, that whole day together. Uh, so there was a lot of chat, but as we were, we hit just on dark, we hit sand dunes and we walked in sand dunes for about 25 kilometres. And, I mean, we started at, I don't know, I can't actually remember, 6, 7 a.m. and we came in just under 22 hours later. Uh, so it was a big day, sort of like that 2 a.m., 3 a.m., middle of the sand dunes, never ending. The old, we were we were a wee bit low, but um, yeah, we got there in the end, thank goodness. <laughs> yeah, it, it must have been just massively challenging and it was great that you had kind of everyone with you on that day to sort of push you along. I can imagine that if people were doing it by themselves that, just the drive to keep going oh, so hard and at that stage it's all the mental game it's nothing or it obviously is your body will be able to do it but it's just your mind at that stage you know you're sort of getting a wee bit sleep deprived being out there all day in the hot and the heat and the wind and you know you've still got another 20 kilometers ahead of you and it's dark so it is just a matter of you know putting one foot in front of the other and just getting closer to that finish line mm. yeah it's amazing what your body will actually hold up to um if your mind yeah. keeps telling it to do it do its thing yeah yeah absolutely yeah holly i'm going to change tack a little bit you talked a wee bit about running for rangers as well and that was kind of uh something that you were raising money for um with the, the marathon de Saab. Can you kind of give us a bit more of of an idea about actually what that is and kind of that was that something that you guys started up? So uh, my sister Flip is married to Sam Taylor and they live in Kenya and he works on a conservancy called Barana and where they have rhino and obviously 
a whole lot of wildlife, but specifically rhino, 20 rhino were located onto their property. And keeping uh, those rhinos safe from poachers is a, a massive, massive deal. And they, he's got a whole lot of rangers that are out there 24 hours a day, seven days a week, um, keeping an eye on these rhino and protecting them. And Sam found that there is a lot of um, support for the rhino, uh, but you know he's looking after these guys and he really wanted to set up a charity that could that could provide these rangers with gear so things as simple as um you know warm socks uh thermal imaging uh, water packs um night vision goggles just so they can do do properly you know these guys are the first line of defense against the poachers and they're in you know highly dangerous jobs as well so Sam wanted, yeah, to create create a charity and there's a whole lot of sort of neighbouring conservancies um, in Kenya as well and we ended up raising over 115,000 US and that was sort of divvied up across um, the ranges sort of around Kenya. So it's a, it's a really great charity and the Marathon de Saab was sort of that, that the first race that set it off and the the idea behind sort of doing these extreme races is um you know you create awareness and people we started off calling ourselves running for rangers and we've actually just changed that to four rangers because we've had people um riding for us kayaking for us doing tough mudders for us you know people are off to do the new york marathon uh, so it's it's a really great way people feel that they can contribute, but also do something for themselves at the same time and and create create some noise around that. Yeah, I think that those kind of two things really align really well. Actually, that that kind of physical fitness, getting yourself outdoors, but actually supporting basically Mother Earth and. Yeah. Just looking looking after that and looking after the guys that, that look after her as well. Because with the, with the rangers, if they're not getting support from, from people like you guys, how much how much stuff do they have to start with? They do. So Barana obviously looks after them extremely well, but it comes at a massive cost. And, and so people pay conservancy fees and to help but it is it's just a never-ending it's a never-ending battle really and all the support that they can get to do their jobs better or just to be just to be equipped um, properly to so they can do their jobs and everything helps I mean Barana's got over 100 rangers and so just kitting them out New Zealand Sock Company a company in Ashburton um, they actually when I went over one time we took over you know, 10 kgs worth of socks, uh, merino socks. So everything helps. Those guys were so, the rangers were so stoked. They, when we gave them to them, they pulled off their, um, pulled off their boots. And honestly, the socks that they were wearing, we would we'd just chuck them straight out here in New Zealand. Like we wouldn't even dream of putting them on. And these guys were out there sort of for the entire night in, in this gear that, we wouldn't think is is sort of even up to a standard that we would use. Holly, I think probably kind of going on from that as well is that 
you've done another event to kind of help support four rangers as well and that's uh was that one that you'd done this year over in peru yes we did that in uh june this year we're actually in uh in a wee bit of a celebration mode after we finished the mds and sitting around a, a pool having one too many beers and um there was a flyer there for this it's called the jungle beyond the ultimate jungle ultra and you know, we were talking about, well, you know, how do we go on from the Marathon de Saab and the success of everyone finishing that. And so as the five of us, we decided that you know, the idea would be sort of to do one one ultra event every year. Uh, and so the Jungle Ultra was picked as, picked as the next one, like totally, totally the opposite to Marathon de Saab. Um, but yeah, just as, just as amazing. Yeah, a lot wet, wet and uh, muddier, I would imagine. <laughs> yeah, it was. It was. It was. Um, it was actually far more suited, uh, environment-wise, terrain-wise, to myself. I just, I felt like I was on the west coast, but it was on steroids. It was that same. It was warm and it was wet, and but everything like the leaves were massive, the spiders were massive, the butterflies were massive. It was. Yeah, it was awesome. Yeah, I, I, like up in the up in the Andes, especially around Peru, because I think you started kind of kicked off things around Cu- the Cusco area. Yeah, it's definitely correct. like there's a lot of familiar fam, uh, a lot of familiarity around there, kind of coming from New Zealand, but also there's there's quite a bit of difference as well that you're just like, oh, that looks the same, but. There's something yeah. weird about it. It was, yeah. It made us. It made us realize, or made me realize, just New Zealand is so small. We think, it, you know, the landscapes. I mean, in there in the Andes, it was just massive, and it just went for miles. It was incredible, a really incredible landscape. Mm, yeah, yeah. So you guys went over there as as the five of you again. We actually, one um, ended up having to pull out, but we uh, convinced six more unsuspecting humans to join us. So there were 10 of us this time that headed uh, headed to, yeah, we met in Cusco and then headed to the jungle. Fantastic. So this is, a again, it's kind of a five-day race that you go through. Um, and yeah. 230K, is that right? Very similar in the setup in that you carry everything uh, you camp you camp at specific spots overnight so you know sort of each day is a stage and the only difference we had to carry a hammock so we had to carry what we slept in and they gave us hot water and cold water whereas in the desert we just had cold water so that was sort of the only two things that were switched around was it pretty cold at night there as well or not too bad just sleeping in a hammock yeah, no, it was pretty good. The, uh, the first night we were actually up, still up um, really high. We were just over 4,000 metres. Uh, but we didn't have to drop off our suitcases until the next morning, the morning we started. So we could have, I mean, I had um, slept in a puffer jacket and hat and everything really. So it was fine. And then, yeah, that first day we dropped quite significantly. So we were down down right in the jungle from, from that second night onwards. And I just had a, sort of a thin um, sleeping bag and absolutely fine. 
yeah there's quite a uh, difference in terrain from kind of up at that height then coming down through the cloud forest down into the into the jungle it's pretty impressive to kind of see the see the difference in such a short kind of distance yeah, relatively and, yeah it was sort of that first day we were at the um sort of above the clouds looking down onto the jungle and then the second night we were way down in the valley floor so yeah we just we, we ran all the way down sort of transitioning through um dry that sort of dry um arid right down into the extremely wet <laughs> and lush jungle did you have any problems with the altitude while you were there yes i did uh so Jax and i we the idea was we had just over a week in cusco to get us sort of in the best possible possible place leading into the race uh, but there's a new sort of tourist attraction called Rainbow Mountain, which is incredible, but it sits at over 5,000 metres. And coming down, I got a horrific altitude sickness. Anyway, I had a few days to recover, and that was fine. Um, yeah, and then headed to the jungle. So we were up high, and I actually, I thought I had it again, but I ended up having a gastro bug instead. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. So yeah. you got you got gastro before the start of the race. I like looking back. It was it's so glaringly obvious that I didn't have altitude uh, sickness. But we did climb on our on the drive to the first camp. We did climb to almost five thousand meters, uh, and so I had a really bad headache, and I just thought I had altitude sickness. So I knew that we dropped on that first day um, really significantly. So I just thought you know all I had to do was get to get to camp two and I'd be fine. But no, that was <laughs> it was not altitude sickness. And uh, by the end of that day one I was just not in a great place. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh no. You had to carry all your own supply of toilet paper as well, I'm assuming. <laughs> yeah. I think I went through an entire uh, bag of wet wipes on day one. So and Jax was like, make sure you pack three. And I'm so glad I did. My goodness. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> I had a previous podcast guest. Uh, one of, some of their advice was just always pack more undies than you need. <laughs> so sometimes it's well worthwhile, especially in, when you're in Peru. Oh, that could not be true. So again, that sounds like kind of a, a case of actually just having to convince your brain that your body can actually get down uh, this, how long was it, 30, 40, 50K day when yeah, you're feeling really uh, rubbish? Yeah, day one was 38 kilometers. And I set off and sort of within the first 10 kilometers, um, Jackson Sam waiting for me at the first checkpoint and I just told them to leave me I was just like I'm, I know that I'm going to get there it's just going to take me a wee while and as I carried on I just felt just got so much worse but and you know at one point I was just standing there and I was just thought what the hell am I doing you know how is this any fun all I want to do is curl up in a ball and lie on the side of the road um, but you do, you just, I mean, there wasn't, there was no other option. The longer I was out there, the less time I had for recovery and and sort of back at base camp where people could help me. So it was, it was just, 
I mean, thank goodness that day one, there was actually a lot of on the road. So it was easy. It was, I just put my pack on, put my head down and just walked as fast as I could. You managed to get over that gastro as you went through <laughs> yeah. the race or was that there for the whole five days? No, I, uh, at the end of day one, I got a good dose of antibiotics and I should have had another dose on day two, but I didn't because I thought I was getting better. And then it hit me again on day three and that was when I went to the doctors on day three and I just said, you know, give me everything that you can. Um and so I got a double dose of antibiotics and then day four was my best day of the race. I absolutely loved it. So yeah, felt a lot better, a lot better. What do you love about day day four? Was it just the contrast <coughs> of how you felt to the first three or was it there other stuff? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, like I was feeling good. I think I also I had gone very slowly on those first three days and so my body, uh, my body was okay. Um, and day four was exactly what I imagined the entire race to be like. We were deep in the jungle. It was wet. It was pouring with rain. It was warm. Um, we were right sort of right in the growth. There were, there were animals. There was everything sort of out to get you. It was uh, quite hilly, quite steep in places. And it was, yeah, it was, it was a lot of single track, a lot of river crossings. Um, and it was a, a good, long, hard day as well. And it was just, it was great. It was such a great day for me. Wicked. And it's it's such a beautiful area. We were kind of talking before um, before we started recording about, yeah, I, I got sick on the Inca, Inca Trail with gastro as well. And you kind of, you just feel rubbish. And I didn't have to push through kind of, 40 50k days at the time you kind of wandering about 10k's but you're looking around and trying to appreciate how beautiful everything is and how amazing it is but you're also just kind of wishing that there had been better hand hygiene going on somewhere along the line <laughs> whether it was you or whether it was someone else and you're just thinking oh it'd be nicer if I didn't have to kind of shoot off and do this every sort of 15 20 minutes i just and i don't know where i got it from i was so careful but it is it's just one of those things unfortunately and uh, you know looking back it makes a bloody good story now so and uh i got to the end and i, I love the race so yeah so mm. it wasn't that bad yeah what were the other challenges through the race that you you've came up against besides the the illness um, there wasn't so many challenges as such because mentally I knew, like, no, you go to a race like this, that it is going to be hard. And there had been, um, you know, there are some articles on that, that this Jungle Ultra is sort of in the top 10 hardest races to do. So we knew, we knew it wasn't going to be a walk in the park. Um, Another challenge, I suppose, is you're carrying everything on your back and you have mm. to be, you know, you have to be so careful about what you pack in and make sure you've got everything, your food, managing your food, um, dehydration, obviously being in the jungle uh, and it's so warm and so humid, yeah, um, to be careful on that. And then with the gastro bug on top of that, I was paranoid that I was going to get dehydrated, um, but I didn't. So I just, um, yeah, I mean, the medics, 
medics there were absolutely fantastic as well. So, so there were challenges. I mean, obviously the length of the race as well poured with rain. They had massive rains, which actually ended up changing the course because uh, the rivers were too. Some of the rivers were too high for us to cross. But it's all part of it. I mean, you don't go into a race like this and expect it to be easy or um, yeah, or not have challenges. It's just sort of how you deal with it when you come across them. Mm. Definitely. How do you prep for a race like that? Well, after uh, MDS, one thing that I was a little wanted was um, the amount that we walked. And I just felt like my endurance uh, race, you know, wasn't quite strong enough. So I had a year to train. Um, and so I entered more longer distance races that I could. So I did things like uh, the Morotapu Ultra um, and Red Bull Defiance, which is a two-day multi-stage race. And we did a 24-hour race. And then I would just sort of, if I had a free weekend, I would get a pack, a heavy pack, put it on my back and, and try and do sort of back-to-back long days. I wasn't necessarily running but just that trying to get more time on my feet for a longer amount of time, sort of, you know, six plus hours each day. So that was good. And I like, I went into that race feeling, feeling physically in a really good space and mentally as well. So I really felt like I had to see myself up um, to be in the best possible shape going into it. Mm. Yeah. And I think you learn a lot about yourself when you're, out there kind of really pushing things consistently especially doing that physical stuff it's just like you learn kind of where your where your capacity is yeah absolutely you also learn that that you know you're always going to get through it Mm. it's just and it comes down to that mental game again really I mean if you if you mentally you think you're you know if you're in the right space then it's just a matter of doing it yeah. Do you have any kind of ways that you kind of get into that mental space or into the zone or you just go out and, and it happens? I think I just go out and it happens and, you know, you want to get to the finish line as soon as possible. Um, but I've, I, and I've done, I've done endurance races before where, you know, you just, you kind of push through the pain and you'll get there. And then it is a lot of type two fun uh, at times. And you look back, you know, you're hate, hating it at the time and I'm never doing this again. Um, and then you get to the end and sort of the euphoria of completing it and sort of washes over you and you're like, oh, that was awesome. Yeah, that was really great. How did the body hold up during the prep? Kind of everything went smoothly or niggle yeah. after niggle? No, I, once again, I'm extremely lucky and I haven't had an injury. Um, so I, I think I put that uh, down to the fact that I don't do just one discipline. I sort of leading up, so I was running, I was biking, um, I go to the gym, so I do aerobics classes and just keeping a good balance of fitness activities. Um a lot of different muscle groups and yeah just and very lucky injury wise well managed as well by the sounds of it not all just luck take a little bit of credit there <laughs> yeah well managed. <laughs> so holly the, these races 
obviously a great way to push yourself, but also a great way to kind of raise raise funds for four ranges. But you also kind of had something else that started out as kind of a way to to help raise raise money and raise awareness for rangers um, in terms of your magazine. Yes. How did how did the idea for that come about? I work for a magazine in Ashburton. I love magazines and design, and I always felt there was a, a place in the market for a well-designed adventure magazine. Like I love magazines like Frankie and and those type of magazines, but they were I found a lot of them are fashion focused. Um, and what I wanted to produce was an adventure magazine that was more like a coffee table book. It was beautifully presented and you'd pick it up and there were real stories in it. Sort of the whole thing was real stories. I think we go online these days for air reviews and race reports and those type of things. You know, and it is a very easy way and an up-to-date way um, to search for those, those type of things. So I wanted, yeah, just to, I mean, the idea behind Say Yes to Adventure is ordinary people doing extraordinary things and sort of come, becoming involved in more this multi-sport and adventure racing, you find out about so many people and there are so many incredible people out out there doing these amazing adventures and and I just wanted to produce a platform to, yeah, so people could share stories. Brilliant. And that's something that I found about the podcast as well. There's just so many cool people with cool stories that, no one really knows about and actually it's, getting these stories out it gives you such a, a cool buzz yourself actually just talking and and listening and learning to them absolutely i say i say you know the best part about the magazine is the people that i come in contact with that are doing these great adventures and now the magazine's sort of been out on the market for over a year I have people reaching out to me with their own stories and, you know, wanting to go into the magazine and and everyone has a story, you know, no matter how big an adventure or how small of an adventure, it's still an adventure. And, yeah, and that's sort of the great thing about it. You know, you can just go out there. It can be just rocking out the back door and going for a half-day trip in the trip in the hills or it can be sort of cycling down South America. Um, but yeah, there's a massive range of these people doing incredible things. So all of those kind of that range of adventures, you kind of amalgamate them into the, into the magazine. Yeah, or you think, is... oh, maybe not this one. <laughs> no, I my mum, mum helps me out. She's amazing. She helps me with the editor and we have sort of a rule that if we both, if we both like the story, then it goes in. And it really is. It's just sort of like first and first serve. If you've got a great story and uh, and great images as well, and then why not put it in there? I mean, every story appeals to to different people, and it, it's nice to have a really broad range of, of of adventures. You know, from rock climbing to kayaking to just going on a tramp. Yeah, to one girl that was living in in Dhaka, which was an incredible story and one that we wouldn't immediately put into the adventure box when talking about it, but her adventure is just incredible. Mm. Yeah, it's amazing what you can find adventure in, I think, that sometimes even the stuff that you kind of think, ah, oh, 
Mm, not sure about that, but it depends on which way you look at it. It's it's quite adventurous. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, Mum will come back to me and she'll be like, "I'm not so sure about this one," and she'll be like, oh, "I absolutely loved that story." So I also think it is a um, sort of what time in your life you are, whether you're immersed in it yourself or you're just reading about it, or so. So there's a whole range just to to really you know, suit anybody. I mean, I have uh, I've got I have a friend that's got a son and he's uh, seven years old and he has got every single one of my magazines and he took his class and talked about um, talked about it to his class. So I mean, you can't say that I am reaching a specific target sort of market when you've got someone as young as that that just loves everything about the magazine did you have a specific target in mind before you started or did you just kind of go I suppose it was me I um you know I I made this magazine for something that I would love which (laughs) I probably should have done a wee bit more research but it, it has worked out well I, you know, I wanted uh, someone that was adventurous, heading out there and doing it themselves, appreciated a quality product, appreciated beautiful photos, um, and and had a bit of a disposable income. But I found that, yes, there are people, you know, sort of that my main audience is the 25 to 35-year-old female, but, you know, my parents' friends absolutely love it, sort of that age group, and then also sort of that younger school school group, which I would love to push even more to, to try and inspire inspire sort of that age group to get out there once they finish school. So there isn't really a specific target as such, just as long as you've got a sense of adventure. Yeah, whoever's enjoying it, really. Yeah, absolutely. Have you had any big lessons along the way while you've been doing it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> every day is a lesson I uh, I've never had a business before I've never had um, I've never done anything like this before and so you know there really it is the, the best way to learn is just to do it yourself and I mean there are many things if I was to start over again I'd do differently um, but there's also things that I got right and just as long as you've got a passion for what you're doing, um, especially in those in these early early stages of trying to get a product sort of cemented in a market, um, yeah, you just you learn so much along the way. <laughs> mm. And I think when you do kind of make those mistakes and head off down down the wrong sort of pathway, you actually when you get things right, you appreciate it so much more, and it's because you've actually gone through this tough challenge uh challenging time that actually when you get it you're like yes that's awesome i'm i'm pretty stoked with myself there yeah absolutely and you know when a when a rolls off the print uh, printer and it, and you pick it up and i can smell it and i just you know this is this is why i do it i, I love magazines and i love the fact that i've created it myself and um, you know, people's feedback, I get emails from people that just say, you know, this is my favorite magazine and, or um, I've read an article about this and I'm off to do, do something like that. So the, sort of have created a tool to help people, to inspire people to go and do something for themselves. Yeah, it's so it's satisfying. Holly, I want to talk a little bit more about failure 
actually. Can you tell me about a time that you failed and what you uh, what you learned from it? I was thinking about this and I wrote an article um, a while ago about, I went on an adventure and we were searching for a, a plane and we didn't end up finding the plane. Um, and so sort of brought to my attention, you know, was that a failed adventure or was the fact that you still went on the adventure and created something, does that make it a, a success? And so, so I've had, I've had so many failures um, as in completing what I set out to do. Um, but from every failure, you learn from it and, and then it just sets you off in a better, like you cannot go backwards no matter what, what's happened, you've already learned so much from it. So um, to be able to then go forward, you're just in such a better state. Mm, definitely. Holly, can you tell me about the last uncomfortable thing that you did and how you got through it? <laughs> I, I do some um, talks and... Before I created this magazine, the thought of standing up and talking in front of people just terrified me. My sister would always laugh at me because I was just sort of a, a bumbling mess standing up there playing with my hair. And um, but as I have, as I've got this, and I'm actually talking about something that I'm passionate about and something that I know um, know so well that it makes it a lot easier. But I was doing a talk last week and. My computer didn't turn on and my projector didn't work. And I normally I normally do a printout of my presentation just in case, but I didn't this time because I'd changed my presentation. Um, and so I sort of had to stand up there and talk to these people for about 40 minutes and just talk to them. And, you know, I was like, okay, what is the worst case scenario? Well, the worst case scenario has happened and it's not actually that bad. So I just got up there and talked to them and used a lot more hand gestures. And uh, yeah, so while it wasn't, didn't turn out, I mean, it would have been a lot better with images. Um, I still think the worst case scenario wasn't actually bad at all. Mm. Same sort of thing, like with what you were talking about with the races before that actually this is, is an ideal, it's not great, but I'm going to get through it. It's just going to be a time thing and I'm just going to have to do it. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's really good if you do. I always sort of look at what is the worst case scenario and if you've got that in your head and you are there, it's not that bad. Like at the end of the day, you can find a way to get through it and, and make it something that's good I mean, turn it around. So, yeah. Mm. It's a great story at the other end as well. Yeah. <laughs> Holly, what's the next uncomfortable thing that you're going to do? Oh, probably uh, sporting wise. Um, I am about to go and do Peak to Pub next week, which is a race uh, from the top of Mount Hutt to Methven. And I have not been on skis in about 10 years. I actually need to find some skis. <laughs> and so... I suppose my competitive side of me looks at this race and um, thinks, you know, how how am I still going to be competitive in something that I haven't done? You know, I, I know that I'm not going to be good at. So it's just I know once I get up there and I just do it, I'll just it'll be absolutely fine. But it, um, I suppose the thing that makes me uncomfortable really is probably the thought of it. 
other than the actual doing of it once you do it it always just sort of works out to be a lot a lot easier a lot better than what you imagine it to be I find that anyway yeah I find that as well as kind of you build things up quite a lot initially and you're just really worried about them then actually you get into it and start and everything evaporates yeah it doesn't actually matter if you're sort of at the last of the pack or you know at the end of the day it's still it's still an awesome experience Mm. holly i know you've got to shoot away soon i've got two more questions for you one of them's real easy but first of all (laughs) i just want to say thank you for uh spending some time with me tonight but also for all the stuff that you're doing inspiring people to kind of get out there to move to have adventures both through kind of the the events that you do yourself but also through your magazine as well and uh, inspiring yeah people of of all ages but also kind of bringing attention to this important issue of the of the rangers as well and all the help that you give them it's it's really awesome well thank you all right, the easy question first. If people want to find out more about you, more about for rangers, more about say yes to adventure, where do they go? So I write a blog. Uh, that's the best place to find out about me. So head to www.hollywoodhouse.com and uh, the rangers, the best place is www.forrangers.com. So F-O-R. And then my magazine is www.sytamagazine.com. And then on there, you can find links to all our social media, Facebook and, and everything else. Cool. And I'll put links to all of that in the, in the notes for the show as well. But before you go, Holly, do you have any advice, any life lessons or interesting facts for me and the listeners? Interesting facts or life lessons, goodness. I think uh, I just get out there. I mean, for those that live in New Zealand, we live in such an incredible place. And actually, I was talking about sort of travel with someone and I was saying, you know, the best places that I've traveled are, are on my back doorstep. I did a did a Rogaine um, a couple of weekends ago up in the Port Hills in Christchurch. I've been running in those Port Hills for about – I don't know, 10 years, I suppose. And I just, I found so many new tracks that I didn't even know existed. So it's just a matter of, of getting out there and it doesn't have to be big. It doesn't have to sort of take up your whole time or plan. It's just putting on some sneakers or getting some friends together and going out there. And, and just by doing that, honestly, it just leads to, leads to so much more and doing something for yourself uh, is just so rewarding. Mm, definitely just go and explore yeah absolutely awesome thanks so much for your time holly it's been great oh thanks so much for having me on chris